Brother Bruce to speak to us, preach to us this morning. Uh, his willingness to take this task on has been a blessing, allowing me to take some time off to be with my family this past week. I don't know that he needs any introduction, but I look forward to his message. Brother, please come. Let's open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 2. When I was pastoring, one of the things that people sometimes would chide me about was my concern about the time. And I used to tell them, say, if you will trust me, I will not abuse it. But we got Lord's Supper and we got this and we got that. And uh, Dave says, don't cut your sermon. And all that's running in my mind is, how can I cut this, and how can I change that, and how can I do that to me? So just pray I'll be faithful, okay? And I'll do my best to keep an eye on the clock so you don't have to. Jeremiah chapter 2. We're going to begin reading at verse 1 and read through verse 13. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1. This is the word of God. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me, and went after worthlessness, and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the God who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells. And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross to the coasts of Cyprus and sea, or send to Kedar and examine with care, See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. 
Amen. In our text this morning, God tells his covenant people how their abandonment of him for idols is like forsaking a fresh spring of water for a stagnant, broken cistern. Now, as Pastor read a few minutes ago from John's Gospel, the Bible teaches us that Jesus himself is the living water. And we put those truths together and we have to stop and ask ourselves this morning, from what source am I drinking water for my soul? From what source am I drinking for my soul? Now our focus obviously will be on verse 13, but I want us to walk through and see what God is saying in verses 1 through 11. Basically, God is acting as a prosecuting attorney, making his case against his covenant people for their unfaithfulness. And that's what you see as you walk through those verses. In verses 1 through 3, God talks about their relationship early on when he made a covenant with his people, when he delivered them, when he provided for them, and yet they were unfaithful. Blatantly, grossly unfaithful. In verses 4 through 8, we see Israel breaks her covenant vows with God. Verse 4, God calls Israel to listen to his complaint against them. In verses 5 through 7a, God recounts his faithful care and provision. His people had played the harlot, but he had been faithful in spite of that. In verses 7b through 8, we see Israel's rebellion against God. They went through the motions, but their hearts and their actions. In fact, I was reading Ezekiel this morning, and God talks about how in the temple that they would go through the act of worship. The priest would bring the sacrifice in, and with a thin wall on the other side of the wall was an idol. And people were worshiping the idols. The priests would be offering sacrifices to those idols. And what you see in verses 9 through 11 then is the egregiousness of their sin. It's a heinous sin they have committed. God is arguing his case against the people and against their heirs and those who would come who would do the same thing. He says this isn't simply making a faux pas. This is a blatant rebellion against your covenant God. In fact, he illustrates it this way in verses 10 and 11. He says, look to the west. Look to the east. That's what those two nation names refer to. Has any nation ever done what you've done? No nation abandons its gods. And if you study ancient Near Eastern history, that's just about a blanket rule. Peoples never change their gods. Individuals might convert like Ruth, who converted and came to Israel. But not a nation. It was just unheard of. But Israel did. Israel, the one who saw and knew and experienced the reality of the living God, she abandoned him. She changed gods. It's something that people do not do. 
Listen to what God is saying. The heinousness of Israel's sin is that she changed the glory, and some translations capitalize the G in glory, making it personal, that you have exchanged your glory. God himself is your glory for idols. You have changed the living God for dead idols. Talk about stupid That's just dumb. But it passes dumb by a long shot. If you read the prophets, God is very, very clear. These people were bold and arrogant in their sin as they worshiped their idols. Playing a religious game as though he didn't see And he did see, and he makes his case, and he points it out, and he says, you have committed spiritual suicide. This is spiritual insanity. And that brings us then to verses 12 and 13, where God makes his specific charge. He's kind of laid out his preliminary argument, and now he drives his point home. You see, in verse 12, be appalled, O heavens. Often when God is making a case against his people, he will call the mountains, the heavens, the rocks as witnesses. As though they are impartial witness, he appeals to his creation to witness the truth of what he is laying out. And notice he lays verb upon verb upon verb. And you say, well, these are synonyms. They mean about the same thing. Yes, it's a literary device to drive home the point of how heinous this is that they have done. You'll notice he says, be shocked, be appalled, be utterly desolate. If you stop and think about it, by the time he finishes, you feel weighed down. You're supposed to. This is... Terrible. God who has been so faithful has been so abused by his unfaithful spouse, his covenant people. And you come to verse 13 and he just lays it out, but it's interesting that he uses word pictures that they would be so familiar with in that dry, arid, desert climate. This is how he describes their sin. For my people have committed two evils. First, they have forsaken me. They've forsaken me, Yahweh, Jehovah, the living God. I revealed myself to them. They know my personal name. They know me intimately. And they have turned away from me. And how does he describe himself? The fountain of living waters. In that climate, if you owned a piece of property that had a spring on it, you were a wealthy person. That was life to you and your family and your livestock. Because water was a precious commodity. So if you had a spring, you had life. 
That's the imagery God uses when he talks to his people and says, you have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Now you can read in the Psalms, Psalm 36, 7 through 9, same type discussion. This was not a new concept. He's drawing on an image that they're familiar with, that God is the source of life. He is their fountain of living water. They would be familiar with Jeremiah's or Jeremiah's hearers would be familiar with the message of Isaiah in Isaiah fifty eight eleven, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you will be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. You see that imagery was familiar to them. God says, the first thing you have done is you have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And then you've hewn out for yourself broken cisterns. The archaeologists tell us that there are cisterns everywhere in Israel. They can just dig around places and there they are because water was so precious The problem was that in hewing out of the rock, the rock would often break, and it was porous. And so often they would line these cisterns with clay, but in the dry heat in the sun, the clay would crack. So they were constantly having to watch the cistern. And what's the picture here? You have hewn out for yourselves broken cisterns. Well, a broken cistern's worthless. It won't hold any water. Now you stop and think what he's saying. You have taken the fountain of living water, the very source of life itself, and you have exchanged that for a broken cistern that can't hold water. You have changed life for death. Go back and read God's descriptions of the idols. You read it in the Psalms, one of the prophets, can't remember which one, God does the same thing and says, here's the absurdity. A man takes a piece of wood. He takes part of that wood and he builds a fire. On that fire, he cooks his dinner and he warms himself. With the other piece of that wood, he carves an idol and bows down and says, you are my God. Hey, I was born at night, but it wasn't last night. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit wants you to see. How absurd, how insane. That's what God is saying here. By using this word picture, he's saying you have traded life to embrace death. We knew that the Apostle Paul teaches us in the New Testament that idols in and of themselves are nothing, but the force behind them is evil. So if we push it logically, God is saying, you have traded me for what your hands have decided is the best, and ultimately that's the evil one who seeks to destroy you. So when we talk about God saying you've exchanged life for death, that's pretty literal, isn't it? And let's think one more step. 
He's not talking physical death. He's talking spiritual death. Wow. Wow. You have sold your soul for that which can only destroy you. You and I have seen it over and over, haven't we? You ever seen the before and after of a drug addict? Makes you weep. Alcoholic? Never forget a guy in my church. He, he was an alcoholic. He was down to nothing. Died from it. But there was a picture in his house of when he was young. I wouldn't have known him. He didn't look the same. And he said, preacher, I did it to myself. But it has taken my life. The good news was that he had come to Christ. And so he had a reason to die with hope. But it was amazing to see how one can trade life for death. Remember a preacher one time saying, folks, Satan's peddling death all around us. It looks good, but in the end, it brings death. You folks have traded the fountain of living water for a cistern that's broken and can hold no water. When I thought about this as I was meditating on this passage, seems to me that a broken cistern incapable of holding life-giving water is just a perfect image of who we are apart from Christ. Without Christ, our lives are broken. No matter how we may present ourselves, they can't hold water. It's Christ who heals us and makes us whole. Now, inherent in every message of judgment, which is what this is, inherent in that message is a call to the faithful to remain faithful. So when you're reading your Old Testament and the prophets are thundering away at the people of God, just remember that his message to them and to us is if you are faithful to me, you keep being faithful. Even if everything collapses around you, you be faithful to me. But also there's a call for the rebel to repent. There's still time for you to repent. It's one reason the message is proclaimed. God is saying, this is what I'm going to do. This judgment is sure to come. But you who are faithful, you stay faithful. And you who are rebellious, repent before it's eternally too late. And so I come back to the question that I asked in the beginning. Where are you getting water for your soul? Because we're all drinking somewhere. I started this title list, Where's Your Water and Hole? But I thought that was a little, a little bit. If you're, if you're from the part of the country where I am, you'd know exactly what I was talking about. But I thought that might not be good for a Sunday morning sermon title to be printed. 
Just as a follower of Jesus Christ, let me ask you, where are you drinking? Where are you drinking? There are many stagnant and polluted cisterns around you. Are you discerning in what you watch, what you listen to, what you read, who you hang with? It doesn't mean that we're not in the world and we don't know. What it means is that we choose what we're going to see, what we're going to hear, where we're going to be, who we're going to be with that affects us and changes us. Where are you drinking? Drink deeply of the word of God. That word will nurture and sustain you. And all of us sooner or later will experience the dark night of the soul. If you've never been there, you will be probably. I don't know a saint who hasn't. You can't feel anything. It's just dark. And in that hole, that pit, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Say, preacher, that ain't Bible. Yes, it is. God loved us and sent his son. First Bible verse I ever memorized. As a little tiny boy. God loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice. Best word is propitiation. Study it. It'll do you good. Drink deeply from the fountain that brings life. Be in the word. Spend time with the Lord Jesus. Listen to his spirit. Fellowship with the saints, worship, serve. Oh, that'll feed your soul, that'll nourish you. It'll keep you faithful when the world around you is falling apart. If you don't know Jesus, I know we know all about him. You may have signed that card, you may have walked the aisle, you may have done whatever people do. But you know and God knows you don't really know him. Then I just tell you this morning, wherever you're drinking, will never satisfy the deepest longings and needs of your soul. You'll never get enough dope. You'll never get enough women. You'll never get enough money. You'll never get enough fame. It will never, ever satisfy that thirst. The Bible says, confess your sin. Turn from it and flee to the cross. For on the cross, Jesus opened a fountain of life where you can not only drink, you can bathe and be made clean, made whole, made new. And there, at the cross, You arise a new person to follow him. Oh, Christian, never stray far from the cross. Drink deeply at the cross.
You say, I don't know where you are this morning, but I know this, we're all drinking somewhere. You know the old song, it's five o'clock somewhere? Hey, everybody's drinking. It's just what are they drinking? When are they drinking? Where are they drinking? And I exhort you, I challenge you. You drink from the fountain of life. One of my favorite um, favorite incidences from the Chronicles of Narnia is from the silver chair, and with this I'll close. Those of you who are familiar, uh, Jill is incredibly thirsty, and she spots a brook. The only problem is, as she gets near, she sees a line between her and the brook. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. Mm, uh, may I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. Oh, I've swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. I didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Well, I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. And as a messenger of that lion, of the Lord Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, I tell you there is no other stream but that which flows from Calvary's fountain. And it's there we as his people must drink. Do you realize that the last invitation in all of scripture in Revelation 22 is where Jesus says, you come. If you're thirsty, you come and drink. And it won't cost you a thing. Jesus, how can you do that? How can you offer that? And it costs me nothing. And he simply does this. I paid it. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Father, thank you. May we as your people drink deeply from that fountain of living water. And if there's one here who doesn't know Jesus, may today be the day they come and say, Lord, save me, wash me, make me clean. I want to be yours. I don't want to be thirsty anymore. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you.
hear our prayer not because we're good, but because we're yours. And we make it in your name. Amen.